Empathy has its place, but understanding someone else's suffering is actually a, it's a task. It's, uh, it's listening. It's, it's becoming a good listener. And this, this is clearly something that's so important, a quality in any practitioner. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I've heard it said that the difference between medicine and poison is the dosage. I think there's another factor here, timing. The difference between medicine and poison is dosage and timing. When I set off on a journey, I've got a friend who always wishes me safe travels, but not too safe. Ah, there we are. That delicate balance between order and chaos, between storage and spending, between fear and curiosity. I've been thinking lately about safety, about how students on college campuses protest against voices that they don't want to hear and instead of leaning into seeing how another can possibly think so different from themselves. About trigger warnings and the need for safe spaces where you can keep the chaos of the world from the door. I understand we need a certain amount of stability and safety for our health and our well-being. And I wonder about the price that we might pay in terms of resiliency and beyond that, becoming anti-fragile. One of the benefits that I did not know that I'd received from going to college was that it would break the boundaries of perception and possibility that my family and community had told me was true. It is both frightening and exhilarating to be exposed to new ideas, and on a good day, to have your maps of the world exhilaratingly challenged, and on a bad day, to feel vulnerable and frightened by those who have a vastly different view of the world. College, travel, a job in a new city, all hold the potential to apply enough pressure and stress to a limited worldview so it can snap, break, bend, or dissolve, and by so doing, create a space that allows for unexpected resources to show up, for navigating the liminal space of not knowing, which in turn plants the seeds for a fertile sense of inquiry. It is uncomfortable and disorienting to realize that the world does not work the way we imagined it should. Sometimes we get broken in a way that allows us to become stronger, more resilient, patient, and tolerant of other perspectives. I had a boss who said people do best when they have both support and challenge, enough stability so that the difficulties can be a catalyst for change. I see this play out in my clinical work, that there needs to be a foundation of trust and safety, and from there, transformative change is possible. In typical yin-yang fashion, we need both order and chaos in certain amounts and at particular times. I don't have answers, but I do have questions about how it is that some people are weakened by the experience of trauma, challenge, and difficulty, while others use it as a kind of fuel for growth and transformation. Like a patient of mine, he's in his 70s now, and at this point doing quite well, but he grew up and abject poverty, and the burdens of that experience fired his will to make his life different. Safe, but not too safe. It does have a nice ring to it, but that edge of, mm, this might not work, that moment when you take a leap of faith, when the demons of past experience are howling in your ears, what do you do then? 
retreat with a story of safety, or step into the abyss of not knowing. Safe, but not too safe. Enough comfort and stability so there's a trustworthy foundation, along with enough novelty, difficulty, and trouble to fuel the creative fires of transformation. One of the things I love doing about the podcast is I get suggestions to talk with people I'd otherwise never have had the chance to meet. The guest of today's show, David Marks, is one of those people. He's been an acupuncturist since the 1970s and has had a career that also included filmmaking, documentary production, and writing, including his cut on the Tao Te Ching. His initial interest in acupuncture was more from the perspective of applied philosophy, which is an idea I suspect you might resonate with. We'll get into that conversation here in just a moment. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine, and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you're helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite 
all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. All right, friends, pour a cup of tea and let's get into this conversation on applied philosophy, receptive states of awareness, and how simple treatments can have profound effects. David Marks, welcome to Geological. Thanks for having me, Michael. My pleasure. I am always curious and delighted to talk with people that have been at this Chinese medicine thing for a long time. And uh, you've been at it since the 70s, is that right? Yeah, I I went off to uh, England at a time where you really couldn't study traditional Chinese medicine in the U.S. It was 1972, and uh, there were weekend courses for nurses, doctors, chiropractors, um, and and believe it or not, people would take a weekend course and then start putting needles in people. Um, that that was happening back. They do that now with dry needling. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> and briefly, I I was uh, in my second year of undergraduate school and uh, in uh, New York studying philosophy when um, a housemate of mine, I lived in a fairly large house, went to England to get treatments with acupuncture for his Hodgkin's disease. And he came back not just raving about the treatments he got and how, how good he felt afterwards, but he had decided to go off and study at the school that the uh, practitioner, Dr. Van Buren, um, had just started a few years before. So I left um, the State University of New York in Stony Brook and went off to London, where I was actually transferred to Empire State College, which was one of the first colleges without walls. And I, I may, uh, it, it's of little historical value, but uh, my acupuncture studies were umbrellaed by the State University of New York um, the first two years till I got my uh, bachelor degree in Chinese studies. And then I, the third year, I completed my uh, course in 1976 and then came back to California where I practiced for about 20 years. Whatever got your attention in that way that you would leave school, travel across the pond and go do something like acupuncture. I mean, what, what was the spark? You know, I, I think that uh, it's interesting. One, one has reasons uh, in the, in the moment uh, and one has reasons in retrospect. 
So I'll tell you both. Um, my reason okay. in the moment was the country wasn't big enough for my ex-girlfriend and I. And I, I had reason to start out fresh. I also had studied philosophy uh, for um, a year. I had just taken philosophy courses at my university and the second semester only oriental philosophy, uh, including a course in the Tao Te Ching, uh, Chinese and Japanese Buddhism. And I was so fascinated that the ancient Chinese, um, and I took, I actually took a, a course in the Rig Veda and the, the Indian philosophy and some Japanese philosophy. But here, here were philosophies that were at least 2,000 years old, examining uh, and questioning the, the nature of human existence, which fascinated me. And when I found out, knowing that philosophy, you could get a philosophy degree, you could even have a doctor of philosophy, but uh, you were either going to become a philosophy professor or um, work for a big corporation convincing people to buy their product or wash dishes or wash dishes. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's, that's a good thing. Clean dishes are a wonderful thing. But um, what I found amazing was that there was this Chinese medicine, which was applied philosophy. And when we think about it, how many <laughs> philosophies can we study and then go on to actually do uh, work or have a profession that's grounded in that philosophy. Now, um, just as an aside, some might say, well, uh, what about modern Western biomedicine? And I have uh, thought about this and actually written on it quite a bit. Uh, the, it, is, it is one of the issues that I have with modern medicine is that uh, it is still very much grounded in a philosophy of uh, initially the dark ages and secondarily in a philosophy of uh, pragmatism and uh, every everything has to be uh, seen and felt and touched, uh, whether with uh, eyes or a microscope. So again, to, to go back chronologically, uh, just that this existed, which I had never heard of before, made me want to go off and study it. But I knew that it was a three-year course. And I also, you know, at the tender age of 20, I, I made a big decision um, because I was an expert at finding fault in things. Um, I could go into any class, <laughs> any situation, and my critical mind would have a good reason to leave, depart early, and felt that I knew it all. So I, I actually made a commitment to myself. You know, I don't have any experience with that. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, I, I, I mean, we're, we're, we're joking yeah. about it. I think there are developmental stages in life and there's that developmental stage of very disgruntled. And let me show you why everything is wrong. Yes. Uh, I mean, I was a kid who quit little league because it was no fun. And my father said to me, David, you're a quitter. And uh, in a way I was, but it, I, I just didn't mm -hmm. want to be in a place that wasn't enlightening or fun or where I felt I was growing. But in this situation, I actually said to myself, you know, I can probably find fault 
with even Chinese medicine and certainly find fault with a modern school that was in England in the English language. But I was going to commit to the three years and not allow my critical Mm -hmm. mind to find anything wrong, to just absorb what I could, experience it, and get the degree. And that was very beneficial. Um, It it actually allowed me to... uh, when, when my fellow students questioned what was going on and didn't understand what was going on and found fault in the process, I could just say, I think we should just experience this and gather what we can. And if we need to gather more afterwards, we will. And there were, as with many schools, uh, uh, students who left out for the first year um, for various mm-hmm. reasons, some justified, but I never had that question in my mind. So that, that was a, a really good experience at a fairly young age to, to complete that. You know, you were just talking about the uh, reasons in the moment and the reasons in retrospect. And it, it's curious to me how sometimes, and I've seen this in my own life, I'll open up to something and it's a hunch. It's really nothing more than a hunch. And yet I'll follow it. And there's this rational part of my mind that's got all this critical noise going on about this, that, and the other thing. But I just set it to the side. It's like, okay, that's fine. You're here. But let's just take it through a cycle. Whatever that cycle is, it could be months, it could be years. In your case, it was years. You take it through a cycle, and then then you look at it again. Right? That critical mind is very helpful, but not all the time. Yes, I, and and I felt that there was a there were enough good things in advance about that I'd heard about this school and uh, Dr. Van Buren in particular that um, I I knew that it would take time uh, to to gather what I could there. Um, and certainly, in the mm-hmm. second and third year, the clinical experience was probably the most important part of my studies. Uh, just observing initially, and then actually sometimes treating patients, but how, how he approached his, his patients uh, and not necessarily becoming a mirror image of what he did, uh, thinking about what I might do and what he did. And, you know, it, it, it brings up a, a, an amazing quality uh, and question about acupuncture. It is possible for two very good practitioners to give completely different treatments for the same condition and have good success. Obviously, uh, you can't have a double blind study because uh, you don't have, you can't split a patient and give them two different treatments. But it's it's partly because uh, we recognize very early that it's as much of an art as a science. And uh, that that's certainly what I learned uh, early on in my studies. So you were there very, very early. Now, usually when I hear people that have gone over to England early on, they went and studied at the Worsley School. You're, I don't even know who Van Buren is. You know, I did my studying here in the States, and I'm not familiar with the history over there in England. How did, how did you end up where you were? Um, I, I didn't know about Worsley either uh, until I got there and found out that that in fact, Dr. Van Buren and Dr. Worsley uh, were good friends, uh, worked together, started a school together, and then had a parting of the ways. 
And I never looked into the detail of that. There were some of the students in my school went over to Worsley School after the first year um, and, and claimed they were getting all the facts and the information and the kind of details that they told me uh, made me realize that, let's, let's just put it simply, that uh, Van Buren was the yin part and Worsley was the yang. And I think that Worsley certainly appealed to the students who had more technical questions about the methodology. And Van Buren um, didn't feel he needed to, I mean, he had a lot of information and the details we got and what we studied, probably very similar to what Worsley had. I think they, they learned in the same schools. But there were times where a question would be asked of Van Buren and he would just smile. And this was very frustrating to some people. <laughs> It it was you know in a it it leaned toward the Zen I have to say. Mm-hmm. So just smile. Did he have anything to say, or he would just smile? No, was I'm, not, I'm not saying all the time, but students press for answers always in every subject, and in Chinese medicine you can keep pressing and uh, you know why would you choose stomach thirty six and colon four over uh, colon four and liver three, you know, uh, you know, they, they would just, and they'd give a set, a, a long uh, list of symptoms in a patient. And th- there became a point where, I mean, he would explain the functions of points, but there came a point where he would just rely on his intuition. And if you didn't recognize that he was doing that, it seemed like he wasn't explaining something. But what he, what I got out of that was that you take all the facts, you learn as much as you can, and you can keep learning. I mean, after at least 2,000 years of texts and uh, uh, practitioners of all sorts in different schools, you can keep learning Chinese medicine your whole life and only have a fraction of the information. But all I felt was that you gain as much of that information, you keep learning uh, through experience as well, but at some point you're always jumping off the cliff and spreading your wings and making an intuitive choice about uh, needles, what you say, herbs. There's, there, there is that function. And it's so unlike biomedicine. It's, it's the, the, the students who had the hardest time were the former nurses and MDs who came to study acu- acupuncture with an open mind and open heart, but it was often so opposite what they had learned. They, they wanted to see how you did X and it created a Y, that you give a blood pressure medication and you could test the blood pressure and it went down. And if it didn't, you increase the the dosage. I mean, that kind of linear thinking is not what traditional Chinese medicine is all about. We, most of us are aware of that. I think young students sometimes have a hard time with that. The intuition piece, I think, is interesting. And for me, it's interesting because it's troublesome. I've got a, I've got a very Western mind. I, I grew up in a culture that, even though I also looked into Chinese philosophy. I remember in high school, I had this English class. Um, I managed to somehow talk my way into one of these. Back in those days, they called it an honors English class, 
where you could like get above an A, you could get like get five points instead of four if you like aced it. And I got into that class and I, I, I can't remember how I got interested in this, but I, Chinese philosophy caught my attention. I remember doing a paper on yin and yang. I don't know what I said in that paper. I just remember I did that I only got four points instead of five and I was disappointed. But there was, there was something that caught my attention. And, and partly, I think, because I didn't understand it. And it was so different than how my mind worked. I still struggle with that. There's, there's a part of my mind that is very logical and sequential, which is why I spent 10 years in the computer industry. Actually, I'm still in the computer industry. I got a podcast. It, and that sequential mind works really well for that. But, and it's got its place in Chinese medicine. But yes, there is that intuitive piece. Now, when it comes to the intuitive piece, I've always got the question for myself, and, and maybe this is what you're talking about, that at some point you got to jump off the cliff and spread your wings, because I've, I've got 20 plus years of, of doing that. But every time I jump off that cliff, it's like, here we are again. And I, you know, and I don't know. doesn't mean I don't care. It just means there's a part of me that doesn't know. And yet I'm moving forward at the same time, trusting you spread your wings, you're, you're going to catch a current. It's going to lead you somewhere. Question I've got about intuition is I often hear people talking about, well, I just work intuitively. And that rational mind of mine is going, are you engaging that portion of your mind that is useful? And you know, it's helpful to have cognitive models in certain places, and it's very helpful to let go of those cognitive models in certain places. So I often have the question, and this is a question I ask myself. What's the difference between intuition and like wishful thinking or hoping it's going to be a certain way? There's plenty of times I put needles into someone thinking I got it right and I checked their pulse and I had it wrong. So I'd love to hear more about intuition, like what it is and, and, and how it's different than wishful thinking or hoping. Well, I, I can only speak to um, my understanding relative to what I've learned in in my studies of traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, and at, at the beginning, we have to see that there's no separating intuition from our intellectual abilities, that, that, that they too are this, uh, these polar opposites that don't exist without each other. And, and we might eclipse one or the other at times. The most fascinating thing about Chinese physiology was that the organs had emotional and spiritual functions that related to the physical functions as well that were inseparable. I also thought that the, uh, the there are there are some phrases that uh, I've heard, and I'm not even sure where. Probably could, because they've been repeated over hundreds of years. That in Chinese anatomy and physiology, the the brain is the bone marrow of the head. That. Although, although it is a fantastic organ, the, the emotions, the intuition even, the ability to remember things are all related to the internal organs. So again, our ability to bring together our intellect and our intuition, when I say jump off the cliff and spread our wings, our, our wings are in fact... Uh, built by our intellect to a great degree, so they're they're inseparable. And I, I I think that there's a timelessness. I mean, if if we approach patients 
with with our hearts and with a sense that what would I do if I were in their condition? What would I recommend to myself? That we don't actually come to this point where we have to think, oh gosh, you know, uh, what do I suggest? Because very often if we consider ourselves and what's right for ourselves, uh, those instinctive responses are, are very clear and, and not always necessarily right for our patients. Um, but in the moment, the best we can do. I mean, there's no, there's no magic formula. There's no, there's no practitioner who gets it right every single time. And even when it's wrong, it may be right for that moment. Above all, clearly, we attempt to do no harm. And that's that's was my approach. I mean, I thought if if I could do no harm uh, and have a methodology that had no side effects, and the worst that people would say is that acupuncture didn't help me at all. <laughs> that's the worst they could say. Then I'm way ahead of most medical intervention. And and I think that that's, that's very, very important. I think that that's that should be the, like I say, the umbrella of it all. Do no harm first, and then help as much as you can in every way you can. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory Practice it in your own kitchen and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online. And if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. When I hear you talk about it in this way. And I didn't quite get the words. I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase it back. It was something to the effect of like, if I was them, what would I do? That to me sounds like a prescription for empathy. That to me sounds like you're using empathy to fuel intuition. I mean, in having this conversation, I'm now looking at empathy and intuition as having a connection that I had not seen before. That when you understand somebody from within the way that they understand themselves and can interact with them that way, then, then there's a connection that, that, that rides outside of our cognitive models and thinking because we are working with that sense of, again, of, of empathy. Yeah, I think we can, we can use empathy as one concept, but in a model that's more in line with traditional Chinese philosophy and, and even Lao Tzu, it's beyond empathy. It's identity. That art thou. <laughs> it, uh, 
is actually, you know, uh, it actually, uh, empathy has its place, but understanding someone else's suffering is actually a, it's a task. It's, uh, it's listening. It's, it's becoming a good listener. And this, this is clearly something that's so important, a quality in any practitioner. Even my, my 95-year-old mother, she loves a good doctor. She knows how to find a good doctor. Why? Because they listen to her and they suggest to her what might help make her better. But the listening is, is an identification process that we all appreciate. And th- there have been treatises written for 2,000, 3,000 years in China about, I mean, the, the original shamanistic roots of traditional Chinese medicine were about these doctors of sorts who would actually take patients in and uh, identify with them and then give them some substance. Sometimes the dust at a crossroads would be considered the cure for something. That's, that's how connected they felt to the rest of nature and, and the world, that there were substances. Now, later, and we're talking later, meaning uh, the, 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 the enlightenment of the Yellow Emperor's period was where they said, oh, the, those shamans, they were messing about. We need to be more practical. And um, so the, this, you know, in uh, call it 600 BC, they were saying, yes, in the old times, everything was okay. And you could take the dust off the road and heal yourself. But now we need more practical things and pragmatic. Um, so times of evidence-based dust. Yes. <laughs> evidence-based <laughs> dust. Exactly. So, you know, th- there's no comparing uh, traditional Chinese medicine to modern biomedicine. I actually, my, my final paper for my undergraduate degree was a very short paper. I, I specialized in them, um, comparing uh, traditional Chinese medicine to modern biomedicine. And my first sentence basically said, there is no comparison. It is, it is, there is no, it, they're doing different things. They are, one is trying to create a central energy in society to keep people healthy by preventing disease, that the physician could walk up to somebody and suggest that they were not happy and make suggestions about changes in their life. At the center, at the core of society, at the nucleus. Whereas Western biomedicine was not just at the edge of society, they were at the bottom of the cliff of the edge of society, patching people up and sending them back in for more without any sense of changing their lives, just basically working on their symptoms so they go back in for more. I mean, we were all shocked and still are shocked that throughout this latest pandemic, where was it mentioned? Hey, you know what? If you eat better, if you have a calm life, uh, if you help your own immune system, you're less likely to get it. And if you do get it, you're probably not going to get it as bad as somebody who's eating poorly and is stressed. 
is has anyone mentioned that? I, I I'm sure there are people in our circles, but I haven't heard it in the public media. And the other thing in the public media, I find really, it kind of makes me smile, um, and I'm so grateful that I have the background I do in Chinese medicine. You know, you hear about it, and some people don't get sick at all, and other people it kills them, and people are scratching their heads and going, "Well, how could it be like this?" Well. If you practice Chinese medicine, you know that, okay, there, there's an external pathogen, and that's one thing, but then you've got this ecosystem of the human being, and it's the interaction of that human being in their own particular ecosystem with whatever that pathogen is that determines the course of that illness. And yes, if we take care of ourselves and, and you know, on everything from what we eat to how we sleep to our psychoemotive habits... It makes a difference. And then, and then I hear things about like, oh, there's this horrible sequela to this. And people, you know, sometimes they're sick and sometimes they're better and they have these fevers and there's this and that and the long haulers. And I'm thinking, well, you know, they talked about that in the Shanghai one. We've got some ideas about that. I think Chinese medicine can be so helpful in this moment. And yes, it's not really in the public dialogue at all. It absolutely can. I, I used to, uh, many... Uh, a few decades ago, I, I gave a couple of talks, and I tried to explain the, the summation of our health, how we're born with ancestral energy, which I defined as a combination mm -hmm. of what we see now as our genetics, plus being raised by the people we got those genetics from. So it's, those two things are almost inseparable. And then how the, the energy of heaven air, we might even consider it to be, and the energy of food and earth, and how all the sum of all those things, plus the course of our lives, result in our general state of health or unhealthiness. But I also said, okay, imagine uh, three people at a bus stop in the rain, and uh, the bus goes by and drives through the puddle, and all three get soaked. One doesn't uh, seem to be affected at all, dries off and is fine. Uh, the other gets a cold and the third one gets pneumonia and dies. Well, this, this to some degree tells us that, okay, this particular experience can have different levels of effect depending on who you are and what you are. I said, but then th there's also the bus that might skid and hit the bus stop and hit all three. And it doesn't matter who you were and what you were. There, there are things out there that are very powerful that these subtle things that affect who we are may not be able to um, defend us. So it's not that we're preaching some type of rigid way that we, we have to be in order to avoid death even or, or remain healthy. But the Chinese certainly have some good ideas about how those things combine uh, to to generate maximum potential for healthiness. The uh, the bus stop in the bus is a great metaphor. You know, I, I listen to it and I go, "Yep, that explains it really well." I I, I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm going to borrow that because so often my patients ask me these kinds of questions, and often we have to answer with some kind of a metaphorical story. We have to. Because you can't, I mean, we could talk about it in Chinese medicine terms, but if you talk about zheng qi, wei qi, ying qi, you know, people are lost. That's never any good. 
And patients don't come to us to learn Chinese medicine. They come to us to feel better. So sometimes like a really simple, helpful analogy like this goes a long, long way. What I learned, and I learned a lot about myself in my practice and patients and how patients suffer. Um, one of the most fascinating things that happened to me in reading the history of Chinese medicine and the importance of how the practitioner relates to the patient and, and gives them some positive creative energy. I read the biography of Mesmer. We get uh, the word mesmerized, and he's considered the father of modern hypnosis. But Mesmer was of the school of philosophers, along with uh, Leibniz and Spinoza, in, uh, in the 17th and beginning of the 18th century, who posited a universal fluid that went through everything, and he would tell his patients, as he was actually putting them into a, helping them get into a trance, that they were contacting the universal fluid and it was flowing through their system and ridding them of their pains and ills. So when the modern school of hypnosis came along at the end of the 1700s, where Mesmer had died, I believe, 1730 or something like that, his techniques were picked up. They basically threw the baby out and kept the bathwater, is the way I see it. That, the, the, that hypnosis has never been really understood or seemed to be that effective. Uh, but I was so fascinated, and this is, I've been practicing uh, for 10 years or so already. Uh, I found out that every psychologist in California has to take two weekends of hypnosis training. And I audited the class uh, that psychotherapists have to take. And I had a wonderful teacher who started out by saying, what's been recognized, and this would have been the 1980s, uh, what's been recognized in hypnosis in only the last few years back then was that deep trance, putting somebody into a deep trance, for example, and suggesting that they don't smoke cigarettes anymore, was not as effective as teaching them self-hypnosis and having them be in their own self-imposed light trance and suggesting to themselves that cigarette smoking is not so good anymore. So he basically started out by saying, the things we tell ourselves <laughs> are so much more powerful than the things that other people tell us. Absolutely. Absolutely. That little bit of knowledge changed my practice. Everyone who walked in the door in one way or another, I encouraged them to start doing some form of positive visualization. Now, you can't tell the farmer who's just come in uh, you know, with back pain because he lifted a 100-pound tire that he needs to start doing positive visualization or meditation or self-hypnosis. But you can tell him as he's resting which implies that he will be resting, <laughs> that he should imagine how it felt when his back didn't hurt. Everybody gets that. You, can, you have to learn to f the, the, the language of the, each patient is individual. You might be able to say to somebody, do you meditate? Oh, well, great. You meditate. In your meditation, visualize as much po as possible what it felt like when your knee didn't hurt. 
And you, you don't need to do anything more than that. And even if you do that 20 seconds, morning and evening, the rest of the day, you can trust that your unconscious mind will turn the switches towards that positive effect. This is not esoteric. There have been studies in biomedicine uh, I think it was at the University of Texas in the 1970s. Uh, many of many of us heard about the the patients who the cancer patients who were given visual therapy to have some type of gobbling mechanism within their bloodstream that gobbled up cancer cells, and the dramatic improvement of those over the con control group who didn't do the positive visualization um, proved to the researchers that thinking that your body is helping itself is a very important part of getting healthy. I extended that to the, the language of suffering. You know, a patient comes in and says, I have my headache, possessing it. Now, you can't just, you can't just say, don't say my headache. You, depending on the personality, you have to gently guide them away. There are some personalities you can say, oh, you said my headache again. You know, you, you can use humor. You can use whatever it takes just to gently guide them away that it's not their headache and they can get rid of it themselves. You know, I see this a lot with patients who come in. I ask, I, I'm very open-ended in the beginning. And, uh, you know, how you doing? What's going on? How can I help? And they'll say things well, like, well, you know, I have, and, and then they'll tell the diagnosis that, that they've got, you know, I have X, Y, Z and they, it's like they've been met. It's like they've been hexed and they've taken the diagnosis and they're living their life through the diagnosis. I am an X, Y, Z kind of patient. I have an X, Y, Z kind of diagnosis. And it's, it is just intransently rooted into their sense of identity. I get it that when you got something in your body that is, you know, it's not just chi, but it, you know, there's like some kind of formed mass or there's, you know, bones that are grinding against each other. That's very easy to take that and believe it. Um, at the same time, you know, like you're saying, that sense of identification can really hold things in place. The things that we say to ourselves, especially the things that we don't even know we're saying to ourselves, it just hold. It, it's like it's hard to change things when you don't realize how you're holding it. Sometimes I have patients, I'll put a few needles in, and, and they'll say something to the effect of, uh, like, wow, my shoulders are so so tight. Why are my shoulders so tight? Where they're actually in a moment where they're recognizing how they're holding their body. New awareness is coming to light. Oh, this is my natural tone. And my shoulders feel like this when I relax them enough to feel it. So I, I love your thoughts about using, well, as you said, light trance. But I just love the idea of, of people being able to talk to themselves in a way that changes them. Because we believe pretty much everything that goes through our mind. Well, the, the, I, I went on to study quite a bit about trance and the, the cutting edge thinkers recognize that we are always entranced by something uh, in every mm -hmm. moment, every waking moment for sure. Uh, what, what we put our attention on is what is entrancing us. 
It is the emphasis of the moment. And the most amazing thing is that we can guide that with our intention. And it is uh, supporting intention that is so, so critical. Um, I want to go back, though, because you, you, you stirred a thought about the, the moment a patient comes in. And I certainly always keep in mind that there are no two people the same and that everybody's different. But there, there's a polarity where I recognized very quickly the patients who were stuck and very much accepted, you know, they, they called their condition by a name that they said they possessed, or they were on a track, not just a, a, a single symptom, but a, a, a whole sense of their life being on a track that couldn't get off. And those who are completely willing <laughs> to change anything. And there are two different approaches. One, once you have a patient who comes in and is open-hearted and open-minded to what you're going to do, whether with acupuncture or dietary suggestions or life suggestions, those, those are the real challenges. Those, those, are, the, those are the tougher ones um, in that we really want to look deep into what we know that can actually catalyze change in them, and uh, the, I think those are the those are the hard ones when when we can't. Um, I I remember one patient. Um, I, I'm going to go back a little bit here. When I started to practice in rural North, Northern California, uh, there was an old Chinese doctor, Doctor Tuan, who for some somehow had gotten to a small town um, near where I lived, and he was practicing acupuncture. And I, in a collegial manner, a young graduate student, I went up to him and I said, do you mind if I watch what you do? And Dr. Tuan was from the modern Hong Kong school. Modern, probably he learned in the 1920s or 30s. And very symptomatic. Uh, we, we would have uh, debates. Uh, I would, I would, he, he actually did a lot of stimulation. He used electricity on the needles. And I said, I, I, he asked me if I used electricity. I said, no, I don't. I, I, you know, I use moxa sometimes. And I said, you know, the yellow emperor didn't encourage using electricity on the needles. He said, uh, if yellow emperor are alive today, he use electricity. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> so we, we had those kind of talks. He also <laughs> taught me how to make tofu perfectly. But he had a treatment that I never saw in the clinic in England for back problems where he would start with bladder 67 and probably do a, a, at least 12 to 16 bladder points all the way up the back and over the top of the head that was very effective. And I didn't quite get that radical because I like to use less needles. But um, I, I used a similar mm -hmm. treatment uh, along with Huato points, balancing the right and left along the, the vertebrae. But I just, I just think we have to be open to all possibilities. I, I had a dentist who allowed me to use acupuncture anesthesia while he drilled my teeth. And he knew nothing about acupuncture. He said, uh, one of my favorite quotes. He said, "Whatever works." So, how well did that? How, well, hang on a second. How well did that work for you? The acupuncture anesthetic. It not only worked very well, 
But what I learned was from other friends that we all have different tolerances to drilling on our teeth. But if you're not near the nerve, mm. uh, the trauma of having a, a shot and being numb for a number of hours is sometimes greater than the actual uh, minimal pain of drilling quickly. And now with high-speed drills, if it's not near the nerve, uh, I would suggest anyone who has a flexible dentist to try it, knowing that if it does hurt, you can say, give me some Novocaine, you know. But uh, I rarely, uh, I, I just press now I, on, uh, there's actually, the, the, the anesthesia point is at the apex next to large intestine four. It's not large intestine four itself. It's right at the apex. That's at least what the modern Chinese use as a uh, anesthesia point for the jaw. Uh, that's lingu. That's the that's like the alternative. Yeah. So uh, the Dong mm -hmm. style yeah. acupuncture. Yeah. Uses but I, that a I lot. just use acupressure yeah. there now, and that's not to say if if it isn't close to the mm -hmm. nerve that I don't occasionally have novocaine. Fortunately, I don't have that have that many cavities anymore. Uh, but I'd like to just tell the story of the a wonderful patient, very sweet, kind woman who was a manager of a hotel, small hotel nearby my practice. She'd been referred to me. And um, she had back pains, pretty severe lower back pain, and sometimes higher up. And I said, let's let's do some treatments. And I did a some energic treat. I always did energic treatments first based on five elements and pulses. Then I would do this very symptomatic bladder treatment. And then if there wasn't any more result, I'd, it varied. But the third treatment for somebody who was in, who, who had intractable pain, I would just do three treatments and say, wait a second, you know, something's not right. If you're not feeling a little bit better or it didn't go away and didn't come back. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd like you to go check and see what's going on. And it turned out that she had cancer with a number of tumors along her spine. And it just, it, it, I'm glad that I didn't treat her for months and months that I recognized that the intractable pain was something that the acupuncture wasn't affecting. And, and that, that was, that was a good thing that she went and she did get treatment. I, I don't know what happened to her over long term, but it's, it, these things happen when somebody has the right attitude, somebody's open to traditional Chinese medicine and would like it to work, and then it doesn't. That's very frustrating. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective, 
herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Well, and sometimes it's because there is something else that's going on. And then you want to look and see, is there yeah. something else going on? Yeah. Right. In fact, sometimes I wonder about, you know, cause we do have this idea that as practitioners, our job is to kind of clear the road for people. Sometimes I hold the question in my mind of if I take away this person's pain, if I help them get rid of this pain, but this pain is actually benefiting them in some way because there's, there's a bigger change that might need to be required. If the pain is maybe asking them to do something else and I put it to sleep, have I really helped them? I hold that as a question. It's the used car salesman's premise. If I show you the right car and you at the right price, are you ready to buy it today? You know, it's it's this kind of this set of <laughs> it's it's this set of <laughs> I had never thought I of know, myself as a used car that, salesman. I love that example because it's it's the our, you, we've got to pre-qualify our patients. If you come in with this symptom and it goes away, what are you willing to do with your life to make it better? <laughs> it, it, it's it's not just symptoms we're dealing with. It's not just pain we're dealing with. We are uh, working with the suffering of human beings, the sum of their suffering often. The sum of their suffering, yes. It goes long, it goes all the way down, doesn't it? And we may just know them for a few weeks or a few months, but if we can catalyze their lives to be in harmony with the natural world uh, in their own particular way, we've we've done our work. And I, I, this is why uh, I say our, our work is so different than a medical doctor. And to, to think of ourselves as treating symptoms, we can be effective. It's amazing how effective we can be. But it's, it's not what the techniques were developed for. They were part of a broader system um, that, that was based in a, a, a vision of how the world works and how humans fit into that world. So if we're just treating symptoms, we are really working with just the, the fossil of what traditional Chinese medicine really is about, not, not the essence, certainly not what Lao Tzu or the Yellow Emperor uh, had in mind. And, and that's okay. I'm not diminishing that. I, I'm, we are in the modern world. We are in the Euro- Euro-American world that has become very material. And we, we are dealing with different kinds of suffering. Uh, in fact, the amazing thing I just saw, because I, I knew that heart disease was still the greatest killer over accidents, over strokes, over cancer even, heart disease. And when I first learned that in school, in, in studying traditional Chinese medicine, I was studying the the heart as the residence of the individual spirit and that the heart was injured by leading to material a life and the fact that heart disease is only increasing do you know that 
the, in 1900, there was minimal heart disease. And in uh, 19, I think the latest statistic comes from 2018. It's the leading cause. Of, and I think it's been the leading cause of disease since at least the 1950s, leading cause of death, I should say. So th those kind of things fascinate me. The, the, the culture we're in, it's important to recognize that and, and recognize that we may not be able to change the shift of our culture, but we may be able to change the shift of an individual life. And that's, that's a powerful thing to do. The influence of culture is not to be diminished. No, no, that's for sure. And and uh, we, uh, if we can, eat, I mean, culture we're just touching on. We might influence somebody's diet, <laughs> which is a very powerful thing. If the culture uh, changed its perspective on diet, uh, we'd probably have a different culture. I find diet to be an incredible minefield. Partly because, you know, we have our habits and predilections and things we like or don't like. Partly because there's such a strong emotional component to food. And especially in the world these days with the internet and people having something to sell in terms of a product or a process or a class or this or that. And, and how you're going to be able to like change your body weight usually is what it is in a ridiculously short amount of time, that's actually impossible. You know, if you'll follow our latest, whatever it is, it just seems like it's turbulent water. It is, but it's, how, how do you, how do you throw some oil on that water and help people with that? I, I actually, I always talk to my patients about diet and I'll talk to anybody about diet and I never will say there's some philosophical reason that you should just be eating plant-based diet. Or um, when people called me a vegetarian, I said, I'm nothing with an IAN at the end of it. I, I don't think there should be any ism about diet. I also don't think it's very nice to call somebody a vegetarian and the food they're eating is also vegetarian. It's very uh, upsetting to some degree. But here's my point. There are simple things a practitioner can do that are very important. For example, I, I had the wonderful uh, experience for about six years. Uh, the doctor who actually delivered my two daughters was also treating um, many women in the community um, and delivering babies and, and treating them afterwards and referring quite a few patients to me. And, you know, a, a woman would come to me with hormonal, clear hormonal imbalance issues that were treatable with needles to a great degree. But I asked them what they ate, and they, they were eating meat and chicken that was clearly laced with hormones. And I said, you know, if I were you, <laughs> and I had a hormonal problem, I wouldn't be putting other hormones in my system or an unknown amount of hormones of different kinds from the in the food I eat. So you might want to just experiment and reduce that. Not that it's this cause. And we know that this is a, a, an important line for us. What we do is not necessarily changing things that are the cause of things, but they may help the cure. So not that your hormonal imbalance is necessarily because you eat 
red meat laced with hormones. But if you do have a hormonal issue, it's important not to eat it. So I also, you know, people say, do you think it's important to eat organic? And I say, well, I do know that animals store toxins from the environment and hormones in their fats. So, you know what, if you want to just put your foot in the water with organic, make sure your dairy products, especially your butter and your cheese and anything that's high fat are organic. And you're probably lessening the toxins that are going into your body. But I won't say, oh, yes, always eat organic. It's the only way to go. Um, it's, it's very important that people grasp and understand for every morsel they're putting in their mouth, why they might change that. And not because it's a fad, not because it's been advertised, but because they really understand why it's better. We're back to that what people tell themselves thing, that light trance of how I'm talking to myself, how I'm thinking about my experience, how I'm tracking my experience. Often people will ask me similar questions about diet, what should I eat, what should I do? And, uh, and because I have this rational kind of scientific mind, uh, and because my patients often do as well, I like to speak to that. And I say, well, you know, I think what's helpful is to get more data points. It's like, you know, to, to get that, the answer to your question here, because everyone's different. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to get some data points. And what you might want to do is, you know, try for, you know, just try it for a month, just a month. Let's just try that you don't drink that ice cold smoothie in the morning. Why don't you do a stir fry? Let's just, again, I don't know if it's going to work for you or not. Don't take my word for it. But, you know, just be your own white mouse. Yeah, that's excellent advice. I, it reminds me, I had a, a patient uh, years ago with a genuine gluten allergy, not just a sensitivity, and could not mm. eat bread or pasta. And we didn't even talk about what else he ate. It wasn't about diet. It was about his gluten allergy. And he felt healthy otherwise. He just could not. He had genuine, strong allergic symptoms to anything with gluten in it. So I experimented, I have to say, with a few treatments. Uh, and he said, you know, I feel a little different. I feel a little better. But I had a tiny piece of bread and it did the same thing. So I went to my, uh, my old Felix Mann um, list of points. I don't know if you've ever seen that book. It's a wonderful book because it has the Chinese and the English name. And I didn't look at the numbers. I just scanned through the spleen points because I had a sense that it, this was a spleen issue. Mm -hmm. And there was mm -hmm. a, a, a point, I think it's spleen 17, it's called food drain. And he came in for his third treatment and I did that bilaterally, only that point. It's, you know, it's so good to give the body one clear message. It's like, go do this. Yeah. And with the, using the name of a point, you know, and uh, you drain your food. <laughs> so I said, okay, you know, we're, we're doing this and this. And I told him the name of the point. You know, I tried to explain to patients why I chose various points and, and, and help them understand what I was doing. So he said, food drain, that sounds good. He went away and he said, you know, I had a piece of toast and I had no reaction. I said, well, have some pasta. He called me up. He had pasta, no reaction. And he never had a treatment again. I always see him on the street because it's a small town and 
he smiles at me and still no problems. And I'm sure it had something to do with the, the series of treatments I gave him. It was, it was only three. Uh, but uh, that, that strength of Chinese medicine, you know, coming back to our uh, joining of the intellectual and the intuitive, how, how we choose our points, what what a, uh, uh, to use your word, word minefield, <laughs> um, but to trust, you know, <laughs> to trust that uh, what we're doing uh, is going to move things in the right direction. I have a, one more patient that I, uh, that came to mind when we were talking about uh, um, our, our inability to influence people sometimes because of their own thoughts. It, it works the other direction. Sometimes people don't recognize the obvious. They don't even, they're not even telling themselves something. So uh, back to my patients, uh, my wonderful, you know, I, I treated a lot of women with young babies. And a woman came to me with shoulder pain with an 18-month-old boy. And uh, she said, you know, my shoulder hurts. I've never had any problem with my shoulder. It, it, you know, it, it, it just hurts all the time. And I felt like the, the old Chinese doctor in the village. And I said, how much does your baby weigh? And which arm do you hold him with? I said, maybe it's time to, <laughs> to not pick him up unilaterally anymore. And soon you're not going to be able to pick him up anymore. And I got the biggest laugh of recognition that somehow, in particular, mothers who were so guided by their loving instincts and, and with, with their babies, um, you know, she just had a moment of enlightenment and, of course, stopped doing that and didn't have any more shoulder pain. Sometimes it's the simplest thing that people aren't saying about themselves that we can help them mirror. Is, is just as important as these subtle messages of, of uh, positive visualization. Actually, I think sometimes the most powerful part of the treatment is not the needles. The needles will kind of set something. There are times I find, and, and this comes back to what you were talking about with listening, and, and it doesn't always happen, but it happens often enough that I, I always leave room for it every day in my clinic with every patient, that there's the possibility of listening for something that the patient is saying, but they are not hearing. They're saying it, but they're not hearing it. And for them to, in some way, be able to hear what they're saying, and they recognize it when they hear it, it can change everything. Just like with that patient you were just describing. Sometimes it's something very simple. Sometimes it might be something very deep. But it's, there's this, and a friend of mine talks about this. She does some sort of like consulting facilitation work, but she's got this wonderful phrase. If you ask her what she does, she says, I help listen people into their own wisdom. And, and that can be really potent. Chinese medicine is full of fantastic metaphors that we can use. Like you were saying, the names of the points that can be helpful but beyond that, I think Chinese medicine gives us this framework, both cognitive and more unformed and less cognitive. We're, we're going to talk about the unity of yin and yang here in that way, where 
some yeah, it's it almost seems magical because all you did, or seemingly all you did, was say something. But the potency of it is that the person could actually hear it. And it can make such a difference. I I would uh, slightly amend something you said that I actually began to feel that while the patient had the needles in, uh, there was a certain uh, connection and receptiveness that words had a, a, a more powerful effect during that those moments. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough uh, and casual enough that my patients would come in and I had a fairly long initial interview with them and a first treatment where I sat with them and whether the needle stayed in 20 minutes or 40 minutes, depending on my feeling about it, I sat with them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we could sit in silence and sometimes it was uh, lots of conversation, but either way, that time while the needles were in and, and I was connecting with them and giving me giving them my full attention, I felt it, it was uh, a critical moment in their process. You know, relative to what you just said also, uh, Carl Jung, uh, one of his central tenets, I mean, there's a lot of things that Jung talks about that or above my head. I don't claim to understand everything. But one of the things that I've read about is how every he knew almost immediately when somebody came in the door <laughs> what their problem was. <laughs> and his job was to help them through his therapy and through through his type of uh, psychoanalysis to help them recognize what that was, whether it was through their dreams, through conversation, and it, simply telling them was never going to work. They had to. They had to come to that, and, and that's that's a good thing to remember. I mean, it it varies. Sometimes you know, like, for example, my my patient with the shoulder pain. I I I wasn't going to let her wait and realize that it was her the ba- the weight of her baby that was hurting her shoulder. And you can be. Uh, outright and forthcoming sometimes. And it depends on the person. Uh, it depends on the condition. Mm-hmm. It's uh, everybody's mm-hmm. absolutely different. Yeah. It's, it's one of the really delightful things about practicing this medicine is that invitation to see what is it now with this person in this moment. And I would also agree with you about what happens when people have needles in them, that there is a process of receptivity that dramatically opens up because because of the way the needles help a person to fall into a deeper coherence with themselves. At least that's the way that I look at it. They fall into a deeper coherence. And so I find that when when the needles are in, I I usually speak less and I am more attentive to what I say, I don't want to use negatives and I don't want to like drop any kind of suggestion in their mind that might not be helpful because I think it, I, because acupuncture induces what we would call a light trance state. Well, we're always entranced. Let's just say needles are very entrancing. And I think as a practitioner, we need to be especially careful and attentive with our language when those needles are in. Absolutely. Our words have a deeper resonance. Absolutely. And uh, it reminds me uh 
there there used to be a debate about whether acupuncture worked. Uh, and one of the things that was said is that uh, it works on animals and they don't necessarily have to believe in it in order for it to work. Well, I recommend to all acupuncturists at least at one time to treat a, a cat or a dog or a horse, which I've treated all of them, and notice what happens to them. Notice the trance-like state they go into. Uh, not all the time. I mean, there are some cats who want to get away as quickly as possible. But for the most part, the dog horses I've treated go into this relaxed state and it's, it's not because of a sense of danger that something's been plunged into them. It's they actually uh, respond to the energy. They really do. They really, when I was in acupuncture school, I had this cat that was getting up in years and her hips didn't work quite as well. She'd have trouble on the stairs. And, and I, I think it was probably in my second year of acupuncture school. And I thought, I'm going to treat the cat, right? Let's see how this works. Lovely cat. She'd, she would sit next to you, but she would rarely sit on your lap. She might sit on your lap for 15 seconds. So I managed to get the cat on my lap. I got a couple needles in. The cat hung on my lap for 20 minutes. I'm like, whose cat is this? Yeah. So that. yeah, that, that's a great experiment to do it. That cat taught me a lot about acupuncture. Yeah. I, I had an arthritic older horse that not only remained still while the needles were in on the ground, lying on the ground, but basically hopped up and thought she was a young filly and ran away after the treatment. <laughs> Yeah, it's my cat could scamper up and down the stairs for a few weeks yeah. after a treatment. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was quite remarkable. Yeah. Quite remarkable. Well, I've got a lot more I'd love to talk with you about. Just you know, a little foreshadowing. There's a book that you did, and I like to talk about that. And I know that you have done a lot of other things in your life besides acupuncture. And I'd love to talk about that. But we're out of time for today. So I'm wondering if you might come back and join me for a part anytime, two. Anytime, anytime. I'm happy. It was. It's great to speak with you and uh, share our ideas. And let me know when I can join you again. Great. We'll we'll do that when we get off the line. Here's there anything else that's sort of top of mind at the moment that you'd like to share with the listeners before we wind it down for today? I I do think that for those students and practitioners who haven't. Uh, read philosophy, whether Chinese philosophy or other philosophy, to to stimulate that part of their mind, whether they apply it directly to their practice or their own lives, examining one's life in the context of human existence is a very good thing uh, in the profession we are in. And uh, I started with Lao Tzu, and that's why I came back to it um, and recently did my own interpretation. But uh, I've also read, I can highly recommend, if you just want to get one book, Aldous Huxley's The Perennial Philosophy. That's a book you can just keep next to your bed and, and mm. read three pages here and there. Uh, highly recommended. I do think that we uh, there's, there's, there's this urge to learn more about the technical side of acupuncture and Chinese medicine, but even if we feel that we're very pragmatic in our practice, to keep our roots in, in philo philosophy, I think, is, is 
a stabilizing effect, which in the end is going to help one's practice and how one feels about one's patients. Wonderful. Well, David, thank you so much for this conversation today, and I look forward to our next one. I didn't even get a chance to dig into David's work with the Tao Te Ching. Sometimes these conversations just take their own watercourse way. But not to worry, we'll have a part two with David over on the geologician side of the house in a month or so. If you find geological to be helpful, please do share it with a friend. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.